0: Welcome to the Arrow buddhist Tradition podcast series. For more information about the Aero-Buddhist Tradition, please go to the website at arrowbuddhism.org. If you wish to make a donation to support this podcast project, please go to the section of the website labeled How to Help.
1: Hello, I'm Nima Oser, and I'm here with Naktura Rinpoche, and we are discussing some... Questions about Buddhism and becoming a Buddhist. Ramache, we have one question that came in from a practitioner, Kundal. And he brings up, I think, something that is really relevant for a lot of young people, which is that we are bombarded with a lot of different spiritual systems. And so I'd like to read his question because the way he describes it, I think, is a really... Uh, comprehensive way. He says, young people who try to approach spirituality live in a world with seemingly overwhelming amount of different and contradicting information and spiritual systems. There are Hindu schools, pagan covens, occult orders, good old-fashioned crackpots, various forms of Buddhism, and whatever else. In this environment, an eclectic approach often seems the safest and most functional one. Reason being that if you're an eclectic practitioner, you choose the methods, practices, and beliefs that at least seemingly seem to work. You don't want to take the risk of investing much time into a system that doesn't seem to work or does not feel right. So I know I I meet people all the time who talk about the superiority of an eclectic approach because then you are a person can potentially then withdraw from that approach what's actually needed and practical and effective from that approach and and the idea that I think of one person in particular we have these really interesting discussions and she always says well why limit myself when I could be drawing from the wisdom of another tradition, too, and, and doing more to help myself and benefit myself in my journey? So what, could you speak to this idea of really valuing the eclectic approach? Does that actually give us more options? What, Where does that
0: – is the, it a burden? Well, we have to um – The eclectic approach um, puts me as the number one item in the known universe. The mighty me is going to look at all these things and decide what works best. So that really I am so much more important than than everything else that I (laughs) am going (laughs) to... The whole thing is crazy. Um, you can't escape from yourself in that way. Um, now, if I've got any problem with me, and me the one who's making all the choices, I'm in a closed loop with that. Um, that is the problem with that. Um... So, it's really, it's, if you look at what you're doing with eclecticism, um, it it depends who the eclectic is. Mm. So, depending on the level of realization of the eclectic, a different experience will come from that so there's no such thing as an eclectic approach uh, outside of an eclectic so you have to define the eclectic and what the problems of the eclectic are before you can say what will come of an eclectic approach because mm-hmm. the approach is not separate from the approacher so for every eclectic there's a different form of eclecticism now uh, Patmasambhava was an eclectic too but he was an enlightened being so an enlightened eclectic has the capacity to look at all systems and see what they are and take from them but unless you are a non-dual eclectic then in all likelihood what you're going to do is take from every system what you like. Or you could be a masochist and take (laughs) from every system the things that you dislike the most in order to challenge yourself. Or a mixture of the two. Um... So I I don't really have a lot of time for it. I mean, it's not that I can't see the value of other systems. Um, I certainly do. Uh, It's not that I can't see the beauty of other systems. I was invited to um, America the first time by Sun Bear, a North American uh, medicine man. Uh, he He was really a lovely man, and uh, I enjoyed being with his people a lot. I really liked them. I liked a lot of the things they did. I particularly liked their gizmos. They had great gizmos. They had fantastic (laughs) bits of fur and, you know, stuff. You know, sort of all this craft work, and I used to look at it, and I think, God, I lust after a lot of this stuff. You know, it's fantastic Hmm. stuff here. And at the end of the day, I thought, well, what would I do with it? <laughs> like, it's their stuff, it's not my stuff. And I could just look there and admire it, you know. Um, and it was wonderful. It was wonderful being there, and they had a whole way of working, and I could see that. But uh, I wasn't tempted to incorporate any of it, uh, because um, that, for me, would be to violate it. You know, because you really have to give yourself to the system to get the most out of it. Um, You know, eclecticism doesn't work sexually.
1: Sexually?
0: Yeah. You know, if eclecticism is the best, you you, you should be going around bonking everybody. Um. (laughs) You know, but that doesn't really work because you don't have a fulfilling relationship with one person. Plus you get diseases and all kinds of things. I would say the same thing probably applies to spirituality. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> you get spiritually transmitted diseases. Yeah, you know, bits fall off you and it's not good. <laughs>
1: In that same vein, uh, sometimes people feel limited by the term Buddhism and saying, I'm a Buddhist or I'm this or I'm that, and see it as a kind of barrier and describe isms as bad things. Like, that's just another ism. And I know even myself, who I just love Buddhism, I know I've gone through. Periods in my life where I've felt like, oh, that's Buddhism is not a specific enough term because if that's what a Buddhist is, then I'm not a Buddhist. And so, what is this value that we uh, get from saying, oh, I'm Buddhist versus something else, or using these labels? And I I know that oftentimes when people try and Argue for not using the term Buddhism, they'll say, Oh, it's kind of a barrier to communicating with people because then they think you're whatever box. And so, what is what about using that term Buddhism or having I'm a Buddhist, having a, an identity? What is so important or about that, or efficient or helpful?
0: Why do you have to tell somebody you're a Buddhist?
1: it usually doesn't come out when I'm telling them I'm a Buddhist, it usually comes out as a question more of people asking, why does anyone need to be a Buddhist, why can't they be, you know, why can't you just be a human being, and it seems like that's the context that comes in as a, maybe like a protest question, or, um, but it is pretty common question that people will ask, and. What's the use well, of it? If somebody
0: says to me, "Why do you have to be a Buddhist?" I said, "You don't. Have a nice day."
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I
0: I don't consider that a question to answer. You know, why ride a horse? Why um? Why eat pizza? Why <laughs> what do anything? Mm. Uh, people do what they want to do. I, I don't think everyone should be a Buddhist.
1: Well, this question continues regarding. Uh, being an eclectic person. Here it says, there are many eclectic people who are only eclectic because it seems to be the only reasonable option. However, many, though not all, eclectic spiritual practitioners would wish to find their spiritual homes. And so that, that made me want to ask you to comment on how Someone can transition from that more eclectic phase or position to finding one's spiritual home. And one question I hear people ask all the time is how do they know when they found their spiritual home? Which is an interesting question. Or how do they, what can they do to find their spiritual home?
0: Well, I think to a certain degree, um, eclecticism is where you have to begin uh, if you have a spiritual inclination and you are not, you don't feel yourself to be part of the spiritual tradition in which you were brought up. I guess there will be a lot of people who are not brought up in a spiritual tradition at Mm -hmm. all. Uh, I suppose when it first occurs to you that it's interesting, you're going to start looking at it and so of course you will look at different things you'd be stupid not to Um, what makes you settle in one place is probably the same thing that allows you to get married to one person Mm -hmm. you fall in love with it or him or her Uh, you have girlfriends and boyfriends in your adolescent years and you get an idea of what it is like associating with a partner. And these relationships come and go. You finally meet somebody and you think, right, this is it. Of course, well, you know, if you take the analogy on, you make mistakes, you get divorced, etc. Um, but it's, it's an imponderable, really. Um, I think that to fall in love and to form a lifelong relationship with a person, I think you you actually have to be qualified to have a relationship. I don't think that everyone who falls in love is qualified to have a relationship because they don't know how to have a relationship or they've got too many ideas that, you know, Uh, prevent them having a relationship, usually selfishness, um, you know, the inability to uh, compromise on things, the um, fundamental lack of authentic appreciation. So uh, you need that in order to have a relationship. Otherwise, it's going to break up because uh, of, of, of how one is. And the same thing is going to be true of a religion. You have to fall in love with the religion or the spiritual path and you have to be qualified to remain with it in terms of a level of sincerity and the ability to work. Um, of course there are you know, vagaries here in terms of working with a teacher or working in a certain tradition <coughs> that might not be suitable for one reason or another. but. Um, I I wouldn't like to answer this question Mm. (laughs) uh, with anything definite because every human being out there has their own situation. They have to make their own decisions um, apart from the fact that if you don't settle somewhere, then you'll never progress with it. You'll never get from it at what can be got from it. You see, um, I also don't really like to answer questions um, where I have no personal experience. And my experience of uh, religion is that I became interested in Vajrayana at the age of eight or nine um, through seeing books on um, Tibetan art at school. And i followed it since then in one way or another, finding out uh, you know, different bits of information. I found meditation practice extremely hard to find anything out about that at all from the Tibetan tradition. So initially my input was from Zen and Theravada books. One, The um, Theravada book I read was by a... Admiral E.H. Shattuck, I think Rear Admiral E.H. Shattuck, called Experiment in Mindfulness. And he spent mm-hmm. some time at a Burmese um, monastery where he practiced silent sitting. And so the book was a, a silent sitting manual, and I just followed it, because it was all that was available. I wouldn't call that being eclectic. That, that was just getting hold of anything I could find. But... Um, Since then, I've just followed the same thing. I went to India, uh, Nepal, I met Dajram Rinpoche, he introduced me to Kwantan Dajram Rinpoche, and I've been there ever since. I've not looked around. um, So I have no experience of eclecticism, I have no Experience of looking at different things and making a judgment. So, when I advise people, yes, you should look around, and I never did that. So, I often feel odd about saying, well, you should do this or that, when it's not what I did. Mm. You know, I fell in love with my first girlfriend that way, and we're still together. Mm. Um, That was. Nyingma Vadriana, and I've, I, I've always been there. Um, it would be nice if that could happen for other people. Um, there's obviously some degree of luck involved with that. Um, where you live, who you know, what the information is that you have. Um, but it's obviously better if you can find home. What is it to find home? Well, it feels like home, (laughs) whatever that means Mm -hmm. to the individual. I I can't say what that feels like. Um, You could approach it intellectually and logically and say you meet a teacher, you ask questions, all the questions make sense, all the answers make sense, you, you practice, you have results of practice, you have problems, you ask the teacher about those problems. The teacher gives you answers, the whole true, and you build confidence, etc., etc, etc. But there's a lot more than that you know, than, than um, an almost scientific analysis mm-hmm. of what's happening in terms of this all makes sense, and I 've checked it and I 've measured it and weighed it, and um, of course, that has to happen as well, but there has to be something emotional there as well you know, it's not just um, a practical thing. It's practical and it's emotional. You know, you have to love your tradition. Because if you don't, there's no energy there.
1: Well, in terms of this kind of stage of the path, thank you, that was wonderful to hear and Uh, especially the analogy of you falling in love with your first girlfriend and staying. You know, sometimes people have asked me about, well, how do you know when you have found your teacher? And one thing that I've noticed in reading so many different Buddhist books over the years is that there's uh, constant warnings about, in Vajrayana, that not only that you need a teacher but that you need to be aware uh, or watch out for a false teacher and I was wondering where does that come from that that's so common is this uh, should we be very afraid at the beginning of the path if I'm a new practitioner should I just be really afraid I'm going to meet a false teacher it seems to be mentioned in 8 out of 10 books about Vajrayana. I know I've heard lamas say that a lot and is, is this a threat that's just the biggest threat in Vajrayana <laughs> or uh, why Why is it that we need to be so concerned about that, about finding this false teacher I, I, that's out you there? You can
0: tell false things fairly easily. There were these two fellas in Bangor r- ran a little shop. This is not Bangor, Maine. This is Anger, North Wales okay. where I used to live. And um we used to know th- know them as the Toupe brothers. They were brothers, but um they they had toupees. And there's something very obvious about a toupee. And you know the weird thing about you can't stop looking at it to see what the <laughs> joint is? You, know, you you try not to, but it's <laughs> there, you know. And so there they are both pretending they've got a full head of hair and they're <laughs> selling shirts and whatever, what have you. And, uh, and the funny thing is, I was talking about this at Pema Ursuline once as, as part of an explanation of something. And I said, there they are trying to tell people they've got a full head of hair and here I am in California telling a room of 50 people about the Toupe brothers in Bangalore, Wales, you know. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, I I think we live in a culture um, where people are suing each other all the time. It didn't work out, so I'm going to sue you for it. Uh, No one's supposed to have any degree of personal responsibility for anything. I got into someone's car a couple of years back, and they had a sun screen in the windshield. Yeah, you know those things. It, yeah, it's a piece of cardboard, it concertinas, and you open it out to stop the sun wrecking your dashboard. And you know, um, and it had written on it, "Do not attempt to drive with this in position." <laughs> No one told me I couldn't drive. I just crashed into a tree. It's your fault. We bought this thing and I (laughs) thought it was all right. Uh, So I I really don't understand that. And in Britain, where we go on holiday, there used to be a diving board that someone had built uh, in this little rocky cove. Uh, They put the concrete there, nice diving boards. I always remember as a child, I go there as an adult, and it's gone. and I said, uh, I'm the diving board. Oh, someone hurt themselves. So we took it away. And I thought, yeah, there was two inches of water. Someone dived into it and concussed themselves. <laughs> that's, you know, that's called natural selection, isn't it? <laughs> I don't get it, you know. <laughs> What's wrong with people using their intelligence? I don't understand you. you. test the depth of the water before you dive into it. I mean, is that so difficult? I, you know, um, um, so, you can, uh, you know, we well, ought to be able to tell if someone's genuine or not. And uh, maybe it's not easy at first because people hide out a bit, but you don't dive straight into a relationship with a teacher. You, you know, you don't make a commitment as soon as you arrive. You might spend some years studying and then you think, yeah, well, this fellow's a schmuck. You know, I'm out. I don't trust this person. I mean, you've got time to do that. I don't really see what the problem is.
1: So okay. that maybe that's the meaning behind the message of being aware of all the false teachers is not that there's hundreds of thousands of uh, false teachers out there. Well, you need but to be aware of the
0: salesmen at the door, too. and mm-hmm. You need to be aware of, of, of the... Um, False everything. Mm. You know, the false fruit you buy in the shop, you think, like it's actually moldy on the bottom. You know, I mean, you check. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to check most things, you know. know, the used car salesman. You've got to check that fella too. Mm. You know, you've got to (laughs) check the product. And if you don't, I mean... It's, there's something wrong with you. Mm. You know, you actually have to have to check life out, you know. You You, you, know, you know, there's the crossing with the little walk fella, you know, here. Mm. I don't remember it, but anyway. But even though the little fella's saying walk, you still look. <laughs> <laughs> I, re- I remember um, what, what one of our students who, called Mark, who was in New York and he was almost run over by a taxi driver on one of these crossings so he thought he'd be a real New Yorker and slammed his hand down the hood and said it says walk and the taxi driver stuck his head out the window and said so you can read (laughs) (laughs) Um, so um, yes people have to use their intelligence and uh, you know, there can come a point where you, um, where you, you know, decide you trust a person. Mm. Like in my horse riding lessons, Melissa spent a long time, longer than any other human being she'd ever known, teaching me how to canter, which was a, a, an almost impossible task. It took me two and a half years. And when I finally got it, um, she had me cantering around. Yes, I was cantering, but hanging onto the saddle and leg wrapping. And she was shouting, wrap, wrap, wrap. And and then she said, I'll tell you when to let go. And so she said, let go. So I just took my hands off. And there I was cantering. And um, so... I obviously had to trust her (laughs) when she said let go of the saddle. That She knew what she was talking about and that was based on on some years of experience with her that she knew what she was talking about. So there comes that point where you take a risk with a person because you've built a level of confidence. But that's all an intelligent procedure. I mean, uh, it wasn't my first day and i would had to trust her out of nothing
1: so if uh, using our intelligence and building one's own level of confidence coming to that place that we can trust how can that happen in a context where there's a teaching like crazy wisdom that there that there is some paradigm where Even if the situation seems untrustable, we should trust it. And uh, I was really surprised, actually. I was asked about crazy wisdom with, with someone who was on a teleclass I was doing. And they said, okay, well, what about crazy wisdom? And I don't know if I can trust my teacher or not because of the idea of crazy wisdom. And, um... And then I was talking about it with Sange Pao, and, and I just brought it up. And he, his quick response was, oh, well, if she's not sure that she can trust him, it's not her teacher. And so from, from inside Vajrayana, I can see that in a really simple, clear way. But then how does someone who's new to Vajrayana navigate that? If this might be crazy wisdom, it doesn't really matter if you don't trust it. What
0: do you understand by the term crazy wisdom?
1: Well, I think the woman in the, in the question who actually brought this up was referring to behavior that didn't make sense to her on behalf of her teacher. And particularly, she had said that she felt like her teacher was sometimes being unkind to her, but that it was supposed to be from for her own good, like that. And then how uh-huh. did she, how do you use your intelligence in a moment like that?
0: Right. Well, I don't think I'm qualified to answer this question in terms of the fact that um, uh, if you read Wisdom Eccentrics, mm-hmm. the book i just finished, which is about my training with and Dojur um, he shouted at me a great deal. Um, so... I obviously felt that that was workable um, or acceptable in some way or endurable. Mm -hmm. Um, I decided to stay there. It changed. Uh, In the end, he called me, he said, you are my son. That was after a long period of time of shouting at me and calling me an idiot, you know, Tomio. Mm. It was a word in Tibetan I learned quite well because he was always applying it to me. I was an idiot. And it was true, I was an idiot. You know, <laughs> it was quite right to say I was an idiot. Um, so, but in terms of crazy wisdom, the Tibetan is Yeshi Cholwa. Yeshe means... Uh, primordial knowing and Cholwa means thrown into chaos Uh, crazy wisdom is one translation of that that and Rinpoche used Um, now crazy wisdom does not particularly mean acting in a crazy way Uh, Crazy wisdom is crazy according to um, conventional mundane sense-making. It looks crazy from that perspective. Uh, but it could be quite mild-mannered behavior. It, it, it needn't be um, extreme. It could simply be that the teacher appreciates. And as soon as you appreciate authentically, you'll appreciate things other people don't appreciate. Um, there's an interesting, um, if you've ever uh, come across a book called Life and How to Survive It by John Cleese and Robin Skinner, it's the sequel to Families and How to Survive <laughs> <laughs> uh, And these are books on uh, a, a family psychotherapy, and they're really extremely interesting, That. The Life and How to Survive It has a lot of information on on psychology and business, but it's all relatable to the ordinary human situation as well. Uh, One part of it dealt with the research of the Timberlawn Foundation, which is in, I think it's in California, where they are looking at psychologically um, uh, abnormal people who are are positively abnormal. um, It's not, you know, the the opposite of pathology. They're unusually psychologically healthy. So it's research into those kind of people. Now, one of the examples uh, is that psychologically unhealthy people will, when separated from their partner for a period of time, will experience uh, loneliness, being bereft, they'll express a great deal of need for their partner to be there, they'll miss their partner excessively, etc. The psychologically unusually healthy will not miss their partners that much, Uh, they'll be glad to see their partner again but they're able to continue with their lives and have fun and do whatever Uh, then they return home from the conference or whatever it was and they're reunited and they enjoy seeing each other again now the psychologically unhealthy view the psychologically healthy as deranged (laughs) there must be something wrong with you because you're not missing your partner You're abnormal. So that would be um, a dim and distant parallel with crazy wisdom. Mm. So just not acting in the usual uh, neurotic manner is going to look abnormal to neurotic people. I think people always think about crazy wisdom that the... um, the teacher involved has to um you know always be up on the roof urinating on people on the doorstep or or whatever some you know some extreme act uh, but that is highly misleading of course you know in those terms the teacher could manifest any kind of behavior but um you know it needn't be extreme, it needn't be non-understandable, just um, abnormal, and normal is neurotic. But there aren't so many of these teachers anyway. They're fairly rare. I'm not one of them. Anything I do, I can explain to people. Whether they like it or not doesn't matter. But <laughs> it's you know I, I'm not going to say anything. I ever did was crazy wisdom. I, I'm not in that category at all. nor wrathful compassion or or, or any of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that certainly you know wrathful compassion. Uh, uh, defines Kunzang Dojo Rinpoche. He was certainly very much like that. Um, But I never saw it as being damaging to myself and I could have got up and left at any time. But you're not likely to run into that, really. Um, I guess my writing teacher was also quite wrathful in the way quite funny because she got to know me and she got to know she could push me uh, and so she pushed me but I was allowing myself to be pushed and I think that there's a relationship there with the teacher in terms of wrathful activity or crazy wisdom where This is not inflicted on people, whether they can understand it or not, or make use of it or not. Otherwise, the teacher becomes some kind of loose cannon. You know, know, Mm -hmm. the teacher is supposed to understand what he or she is doing. Mm -hmm. You know, if I get up and slap you around the face for no apparent reason, you don't understand it, what good have I done you? you know, uh, you know, um, um, Tilopa slapped Naropa around the face with his sandal. After years of hard work on the part of Naropa, doing this and that, and undergoing all these privations, he said, you know, I just want his enlightenment. And Tilopa said, oh, that's what you wanted. And he whacked him on the head <laughs> with his sandal. And, and he finally gets the transmission. Um, But the interesting thing there, or the pertinent thing, is that Naropa actually received transmission. He wasn't just whacked around the head with the sandal and went staggering off with a, uh, you know, a sore cheek. That wasn't the story. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the teacher has to be responsible for how he or she manifests that crazy wisdom And it's not for everyone. You know, there's skillful means. There's the nature of individual communication. So it's not like, well, this is a wrathful teacher. He or she is wrathful with everyone. Uh, Because it has to be appropriate. Uh, I think probably in Tibet, um, there were Different styles of teacher, and certainly Kunsang Dorje was known for being wrathful, and he was wrathful with everyone. Uh, but part of that was um, deliberately keeping his student number extremely small. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was effective in that way. He was a Tsarung master, and so what he taught was highly specific, and he did not want a lot of people around. He he taught what he taught to a small group, and for some... um, I was the first Western student he ever had, and he didn't want me. (laughs) And I think he didn't have another one for some 15 years afterwards, Mm. um, at least. He really kept people away. But then uh, I was recommended to him by Dutra Pache, So I went there and, um, and he put up with me. But uh, but in general, if you're the kind of teacher who's um, giving weekend workshops, then you're encouraging people to come along. You know, you're not being like Kuntza who was discouraging people. Mm. I mean, if you're encouraging people, then you need to... Relate with everyone who comes along, so you know. As you can see, there's a difference there. Someone who is in in that mould of um, uh, wrathful teacher uh, is is you know doing that for a reason. So you can maybe distinguish. Mm But, you know, what also comes across in the question is people wanting to be safe. yeah. You know, let me put the styrofoam cup of coffee between my thighs and drive away, you know. And if I scald myself, it's someone else's fault, not me, you know. People want the world to be safe. I I made some jokes some years back about how eventually there are going to be handrails along every p- pavement. And you're going to, ha- by law, you're going to have to hold the handrail as you walk through town um, in case you fall <laughs> over. To protect your- and the people are fined if they're caught <laughs> letting go of the handrail because it's going in that direction. Everything has to be safe and secure and guaranteed apart from the fact that life is not safe, secure, and guaranteed, and you're going to die. You know, (laughs) life's going to kill you in the end. And there's no one to sue. That's the good bit. (laughs) (laughs) You can't sue anyone for having to die.
1: Thank you for answering that. I I think you said that when... Kunzong Dorje Rinpoche was shouting at you. It wasn't a problem for you. You weren't...
0: (laughs) I I hated it.
1: You hated it. But you didn't feel abused by that, or is it that you just trusted him already?
0: You know why Um, I didn't feel abused? Yeah. Never heard the word. Oh. I didn't know I was being abused. Interesting. I didn't conceive of it in that way. Mm. Um... I'd have felt abused if I was his prisoner hmm. and and he was abusing me but I, I, if I didn't like it, I could have left yeah, so uh, he wasn't keeping me there, I was keeping me there, so I was abusing myself, if anything right? so, mm-hmm. but um yeah it's it would be complex um. If I felt abused, I'd have to say, I feel you're abusing me. And i say, well, good, get out now. <laughs> Stop being abused, go away. <laughs> so, you know, there was nothing I could say anyway. I'd chosen to be there. Mm. So I took responsibility for my choice. So you know, I had no resentment about it. Mm. I put myself there. Well, I could have resented... Did you remember for sending me there? But I didn't resent him because uh, he was completely wonderful. Mm. Um, and I knew he had my best interests at heart. And, uh, it all worked out extremely well. That's not to say that everyone should put up with everything because it'll all work out really well. That's a, a kind of a fairy story way of working with it. I mean, it could have all been bad. He could have been insane, you know. I, I have no idea uh, that's not what happened. I've only got my own life to base it on.
1: Hmm. Well, we have time for one more question, so I want to change directions mm-hmm. uh, and ask you about money. And you don't
0: get everything in life, it's true. <laughs> what you don't get, I can use to give me money. That's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm an inveterate quota of old songs.
1: Oh. <laughs> well, uh, in emailing the llamas from afar, someone asks there about... This whole issue of seeing money as a negative thing in relationship to spirituality and having a sense that the two are somehow antithetical, that uh, dealing with money in some way is not spiritual or not sacred. And this is in the section called The Best Things in Life Are Free. I guess you quote the song there. <laughs> Yes. And you say, it, and part of your response is, it's not possible to involve yourself in Vajrayana as long as money is a spiritual embarrassment. And that seemed like a really powerful way to put it to me because that, uh, I know when I talk with people about the associating money and spirituality that that's there's this sense that somehow money is impure or uh, that we should be ashamed of it or embarrassed or that in Buddhist teachings should never cost money because how dare they. <laughs> so, um, So what about this whole thing about money and Buddhism and money and spirituality? I know spirituality is maybe not the best word, but I think it just applies to people in general, really questioning what is the relationship between the material world and their own spiritual journey. So so it seems like it's a very broad thing. And and I know a lot of different Buddhists have different philosophies around how to negotiate the relationship between money and, and spiritual teachings. And different schools handle it in many different ways, according to different views, could you comment about this? Is money evil? Is it the root of all evil?
0: It's, it's like cabbages or carrots. You know, you know. I have three carrots. You have a cabbage. And I trade you my three carrots yeah. for a cabbage. You grow your cabbage. I grow my carrots. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a means of exchange. Um, in terms of dealing with it, uh, you just have to be honest. Uh, you know, to eat, unless you grow it yourself, you have to go to a shop and give them money. Whether you're called Roshi or Rinpoche or whatever, um, they don't give you food in shops because you're a teacher. You have to pay money for it. Um, you have to live somewhere. Uh, you have to hire the hall. Someone wants money from you. <laughs> They'll give you the hall mm. to give the teaching. You could do it in the field, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. You know, put tents up or something. But, I, uh, you know... Um,
1: Not anymore. You'd need a permit. You'd have to buy a permit. A
0: permit, yeah, right. So, well things are getting constricted you know, maybe once you could kind of live under a tree and eat what fell out of it and people would come (laughs) along but you can't really do that it's not really practical so I think this whole question involves utopianism puritanism um, and all kinds of other stuff there, that it's just a, a pragmatic Uh, One doesn't charge for teachings, but one has to pay for the venue. Um, And anybody who can tries to um, accommodate people who are less well-off. You can let some people in free. You can't let everyone in free. But, I mean, it depends why you're doing what you're doing. If you're doing it for money, then you're a mercenary. Uh, but um, I've never seen it as a problem. You know, all the teachings I've paid to attend, I've never thought about it as being a problem. I've never resented her having to pay for anything. I mean, whoever got there from India presumably they got on an aircraft a ticket had to be bought you know i so i don't see what the deal is why it's an issue i i think it's a a sort of perverted philosophical issue when all you have to do is use your intelligence uh, and be honest Well, actually, if you could do that, the world would be a great place. (laughs) People are greedy. But you you don't have to be greedy. You can be generous. You can make a situation work for everyone in the best way you can. I really don't see what the problem with that is.
1: Were there ever any rich Vajrayana practitioners in...
0: history. Oh, sure.
1: Esri.
0: There are rich monasteries, there are various rich lamas and various poor lamas, and uh, I, I think probably society is reflected in, in, the, yeah. in the range of, of teachers. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a philosophical question I never like philosophical questions uh, they're usually complicated and, um, you see as soon as you call money evil in some way then you're not a Vajrayana practitioner anyway because you're creating a God and the devil situation you know it's quite theistic you know this um, yeah, um you know, relating to spirituality and the world as if they were different. You know, that's um, really anathema to Vajrayana. I mean, the world is the world. Mm-hmm. Here we are and it's um, as you know, Dujan Rinpoche described, it, the infinite purity of the phenomenal world. We don't live in an impure world. We live with impure mind in an environment uh, it's not what you see it's how you see it
1: well that's a wonderful note to end on the infinite purity of the phenomenal world <laughs> mm. <laughs> thank you for taking the time to answer all these questions
0: everything's simple you know. yes I, I think love it a lot of these people who are asking these quick, these questions are uh, need to be more simple Mm. Would have a happier time if they weren't so complicated yeah
1: yeah